I'm going to share a portion of my author bio with you. Award-winning author Laura Christensen wrote her first novel at age 11, and she's been cranking out prose ever since. A child prodigy, Laura taught herself to type on her mom's manual Olympia typewriter. By the time she took her first typing class in ninth grade, she could accurately type 40 words per minute. Dedicated to educating others, Laura has spent 30 years in the classroom. Well, you might be thinking, wow, I didn't know that about her. That's impressive. I'm going to run out and buy all her books. Or you might be thinking, what a stuck-up, self-absorbed braggart. I'll never buy any book she writes, ever. I see this kind of author bio, which I fondly refer to as a swollen ego bio, on more than a few author websites and on the backs of their book covers. The bio I just read to you is full of half-truths that inflate my skills and experience. Here's the full truth. That award I won? It was a national award for an essay I wrote when I was in 11th grade. The first novel I wrote at age 11? It was four pages long, and through that experience I learned that I am not a novel writer, and I have never attempted to write another novel since. Yes, I have been cranking out prose, which defined means ordinary written or spoken language, since age 11. I suspect that you have, too. And while I have published three books, most of the prose I've gotten paid for creating consists of articles, many of which include my byline and even more that do not because I ghostwrite them. Now, there's nothing wrong with choosing to write articles instead of writing books. And newsflash, for most professional writers, article writing pays the bills far better than book writing. Back to my self-inflated bio. I did teach myself to type on my mom's manual typewriter so that I could write that first novel, that four-page one, and I was the fastest and most accurate typist in my beginning typing class in high school. But as to being a child prodigy typist, I'm not so sure that accolade would hold up in court. And then my final line, dedicated to educating others, Laura has spent 30 years in the classroom. Yes, I truly am dedicated to educating others, and I have spent a lot of time in the classroom. 19 of those 30 years were as a student, K through 12, followed by four years of college, followed by two years for my master's degree. And then I spent 11 more years teaching English and journalism full time. If you add all those years up, they equal 30 years in the classroom. Plus, I've taught at several writers' conferences per year since 2004, so if I really felt like stretching the truth, I could throw in 17 more years in the classroom. Laura has spent 47 years in the classroom. Impressive, huh? Sure, my swollen ego bio is packed with half-truths, and it makes me sound somewhat impressive, but stretching the truth is rarely a good idea. Okay, it's never a good idea. Stretching the truth may cause someone to take a second look at you. It might cause them to offer you a book contract or to hire you to work for them. But then what happens? This person begins working with you and they discover that your swollen ego bio is mostly a pack of lies. And this may cause them to distrust you or even to fire you. I'm Laura Christensen. Welcome to the Professional Writer Podcast, where my goal is to help you confidently plan, launch, and grow your writing-related business the ethical way, with integrity. 
In this episode, episode 67, I'm going to share my thoughts about three swollen ego half-truths writers are promoting and that publishing industry professionals often recommend writers do as a means of building their platform. So buckle up, friend, because I am going to rock your boat today. And I think I just mixed metaphors there because do you wear a seatbelt on a boat? I expect to get some pushback on what I'm about to say, and you are welcome to disagree with me. I invite you to share your own perspective inside the Professional Writer Podcast Facebook community. That's our private group for listeners where we continue the discussion about what we're talking about this week on the episode. You'll find the show notes and a link to join the group at bloggingbistro.com. I do think that this is an important conversation to have because vanity metrics are a big thing in the publishing industry. At the very least, we need to be aware that vanity metrics exist and we need to decide whether we think they're okay or not okay. First, let me define what I mean by vanity metrics. Similar to my swollen ego bio, Vanity metrics are overblown numbers of followers, subscribers, or grandiose statements we make about ourselves in an attempt to make ourselves appear more enticing to agents, editors, and publishers, or whoever we're trying to impress. During today's episode, we are going to look closely at three common vanity metrics. So let's dive in. Our first vanity metric is social media followers. A few years ago, when I was a social media manager, I had thousands of followers on my Instagram account. Even though I was not an early adopter of Instagram, I got in when the going was good and when we could quickly amass thousands of followers, basically without even trying. Because I specialized in social media at that time in my career, I followed a bunch of other social media professionals, and I followed them because I wanted to learn from them and share ideas with them, and that was fine. But if my intent at that time had been to build a following of people who I wanted to buy from me, I should have primarily followed and interacted with my ideal client, the people I wanted to serve, who were most likely to buy my services. When I rebranded my business a couple of years ago, I recalibrated my Instagram account. I removed nearly all of the social media managers who were following me, as well as thousands of bots and fake accounts. I unfollowed most of the people that I had been following, and I began following my ideal audience, which was writers and authors. Then I attended a workshop on Instagram where the instructor advised that our Instagram ratio of followers to following should be 40 to 1. In other words, for every one person you follow, 40 people should follow you shocked and dismayed that someone would be disseminating this advice, which I had never ever heard from any social media professional during my years as a social media marketer, I researched it. And I discovered that the industry standard ratio of followers to following is one to one or one to two. The one to two ratio indicates that for every one person you follow, two people will follow you back, not 40. One to two sounds much more reasonable and doable than one to 40, doesn't it? 
As I sat through that workshop, I felt distressed for the pre-published authors in the room. I wondered, how is a new author who is starting from zero, whom no one has ever heard of, how is this author going to entice 40 people to follow them when they follow only one of those people in return? They're not. And the author's going to feel like less than because they won't be able to achieve the 40 to 1 ratio that some marketer told them you're supposed to have. While I'm not a big Instagram user, I do follow the trends closely and I watch what others are doing to grow their following. And one thing I know is that Instagram users are obsessed with follower counts. They have bought into the lie that the more followers they have, the better. The more followers they have, the more popular and desired they are. The more likely they are to get featured in the media and to land book deals and to sell stuff and to begin living the laptop lifestyle where they work five hours a week from a laptop while basking in the sun on a tropical island. And when they buy into this big lie, they become determined to get those tens of thousands of followers however they can. If you are an Instagram user who's trying to grow your following, here's a massive action challenge for you. Take a close look at who follows your Instagram account and at the accounts you follow. If you haven't done this recently, I guarantee that it will be an eye-opener. I recently did this for a client whose Instagram account I took over the management of after somebody else had been managing it for a few years. This account had thousands and thousands of followers. I went through each follower one by one, which takes forever, because that is the only way you can currently do it on Instagram. And I discovered that 90% of their followers were either bots, fake accounts, or inactive accounts. Their account had zero interaction with its followers because the so-called followers weren't even real people, or they were people who hadn't logged into their Instagram accounts in three years. So I removed all of the followers who I could clearly identify as a bot or as inactive. And guess what happened? The reach and the interaction rates of my client's Instagram account skyrocketed after about two weeks. And you may argue here, well, I heard a literary agent say that you should have 10,000 or 20,000 followers on social media before a publisher will even think of offering you a contract. I hate it when they say this. And I talked about this very topic in relation to email subscribers in my previous episode, episode 66, where we debunked seven myths about email marketing. While these numbers in the tens or hundreds of thousands sound enticing to a publisher, numbers alone do not guarantee book sales. I could spend $10,000 in Facebook and Instagram ads and add 10,000 followers to my Instagram account or my Facebook page today. But chances are those followers would be random people who have no intention of ever buying anything from me. I might as well have burned the $10,000 in the fireplace. This obsession many writers and publishers seem to have with follower numbers is magical thinking. There is no magic number of followers you need that will guarantee book sales. Yeah, big numbers look good to a publisher, but are they the right numbers? Are these tens of thousands of followers bots? Are they fake accounts? Are they people who haven't posted on Instagram for over a year? Are they followers you've bought? 
Or are they people who actually care about your writing and are loyal fans? The only one of those metrics I just mentioned that matters is the last one. People who are your loyal fans. People who are the best fit for what you have to offer and the unique way in which you serve them. I've observed many hardworking authors who labor diligently to grow their social media platform day after day, year after year, and they amass 4,000 to 6,000, say, Facebook page followers. Even many best-selling authors of 30 or more books rarely have as many as 30,000 Facebook followers. The ones who do have been actively building their following for over a decade. My suggestion, particularly when it comes to social media followers, is to follow the lead of these hardworking authors. If you truly view writing and publishing as a career, you will devote time each day, every day, to connecting with your ideal readers. You may never reach 10,000 or 50,000 followers, which means... You might never land that contract with a major publishing house, but there are very likely some small publishers out there for whom your writing would be a great fit. Publishers that have more realistic expectations about follower numbers. Don't write off these publishers. While the advance they pay you will likely be smaller than a big name publisher and your book likely won't get as much distribution, it will at least have a chance of getting published. And if you've been diligently working on building relationships with your ideal readers, you'll have the opportunity to get your writing into the hands of the people who need to read it. Another vanity metric that is supposed to impress is what I call the platform plugin that some authors put on their websites. This plugin lists the number of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, etc., etc., followers that you have. It lists how many email subscribers you have, how many people read your blog posts, how many people listen to your podcast. The plugin adds all these numbers together so that agents and publishers and other visitors to your website can be duly impressed when they see that you have a combined reach of over a million people or however many it adds up to. The problem with this means of social proof, and by social proof, I mean demonstrating or proving that you have a huge social media following is similar to those Instagram vanity metrics that I was just describing to you. Let's say you started your Twitter account in 2006 and because you began using Twitter back in the early days of social media when it was super easy to build a large following, you have 20,000 Twitter followers. However, you haven't tweeted since 2015. But hey, you've still got those 20,000 followers that you can add to your platform numbers plugin and people will assume that they're legit followers. I'm going to wrap up my follower rant here because you get the idea. You can post vanity metrics via a platform plugin till the cows come home, but there's only one person in the world who knows whether those numbers accurately reflect your fan base. And that person is you. My question is, just how accurate are those platform numbers? So for example, I may have liked your Facebook page, and I also followed you on Twitter and Instagram, and I subscribed to your email list. Do I count as four followers? Is it ethical for you to count me four times and to count everybody else who follows you on several social channels multiple times? What's your motivation for showcasing your platform numbers? 
Are you doing it to boost your self-esteem? To impress agents and publishers and readers and prospective clients? There is nothing inherently wrong with displaying your platform numbers. Just be aware that it is a vanity metric and it's one that could be highly inaccurate depending on how diligent you are about removing inactive followers and subscribers. You want the numbers you showcase to reflect your actual following as accurately as possible. On to our third vanity metric. Many, many authors describe themselves as a best-selling author or an award-winning author or a best-selling award-winning author. I have seen these monikers on hundreds of book covers and on author websites, in author bios, in email signatures, and in promotional messages. I have heard speakers at writers' conferences advising authors to plaster best-selling award-winning everywhere possible. There's nothing wrong with tooting your horn and letting people know that you have street cred. However, here's what I see quite often, even among those in Christian publishing, and this concerns me. Let's say an author who sells their book on Amazon reaches number one for 10 minutes in some obscure category within a category. For example, their book hits number one in the military technology category, which is a subcategory of engineering and transportation books, which is a subcategory of nonfiction books. Considering there are only eight books total in the entire military technology category, your book could technically reach Amazon bestseller status if you sold only one copy. This author whose book was number one for a few minutes in an obscure category could technically claim that it is an Amazon bestseller, and I have seen it done many times. Sounds impressive, huh? I was talking with one of my author clients about this. One of their books had made one of the big four most prestigious bestseller lists, and those prestigious lists include the New York Times bestseller list, Publishers Weekly, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal. This author's previous books had appeared on other less prominent bestseller lists, but the author told me they didn't feel comfortable announcing that their book was a bestseller until it made one of the big four lists. I admire this author's integrity. While they could have easily claimed the title bestselling author several books ago, they set boundaries for themselves. They waited to call themselves a bestselling author until they felt as if they could truly live into this title. Now, just a little side note about bestseller lists. None of them measure actual bestselling books. These lists either measure a limited number of sales in a few places, or they're curated by a small group of people who pick the books they think are important, not based on what's actually selling. Then there are the award-winning author taglines. I see this one so often that I think every author must be an award-winning author. This tagline is the most problematic for me because I know from experience judging writing contests that many contests get only one or two entrants or they charge an entry fee or both. Combine a low number of entrants with an entry fee and some rinky-dink award that someone invented, and you've got a recipe for a poorly written book winning first prize and the author suddenly thinking they have arrived. 
I also know from experience working with many authors who've won awards and not won awards that the judging criteria for many contests, even big well-known contests, is incredibly subjective. That some of the judges aren't particularly qualified to judge certain genres of writing and that political clout plays a significant role in who wins. For example, Three finalists were announced for a well-known nationwide writing contest in which traditional publishing houses nominate several of their authors in various genres. Well, I read the books of all three finalists in one of the categories, and it was obvious to me which book would win, as it was hands down the best written, most carefully crafted, intriguing book among the three finalists. It was so clearly the winner that I thought anyone with half a brain would surely pick it. The book didn't win. After the contest, the author of the book that I thought would win but didn't contacted me, and I didn't know this person until they contacted me, so I felt that my judgment of those three books had been as non-biased as it could be. I told the author that I had enjoyed their book, and I was disappointed that it hadn't won the award. And the author agreed that they were disappointed, and then they confided, frankly, I didn't expect it to win. This contest has a reputation that books published by the biggest name publisher usually win, and that's exactly what happened. In other words, big money, big clout, your author wins! Similar to identifying yourself as a best-selling author when your book has sold a thousand copies, think carefully about identifying yourself as an award-winning author if you paid to enter some obscure writing contest for which you were the only entrant. The reason I share my thoughts about vanity numbers is because I know how easy it is to get sucked into platform building practices that can become deceitful if you don't manage them extremely carefully. I see so many writers going down this slippery slope and no one is talking about it. Well, I'm talking about it because I think we need more awareness and transparency around the topic of vanity numbers. My suggestion to you is this. Set your standards. Establish your boundaries. Then stick by them. Err on the side of integrity. Focus less on collecting huge numbers of followers and more on connecting with the followers you already have and the ones you will have in the future. I invite you to share your own thoughts on these three examples of vanity metrics. Head over to the Professional Writer Podcast group and make your opinion known. You'll find the link to join in the show notes over at bloggingbistro.com. I promise to listen carefully and without judgment, and I'm definitely willing to reconsider my opinions. In my next episode, I'll share my thoughts about yet another sticky ethical dilemma that owners of writing-related businesses face contracts versus no contracts for business transactions. Yeah, I know the topic of contracts isn't exactly sexy, but it's important. Hope you'll join me.